Good morning, Grace Hill. As I already introduced myself, my name's Alan, and so excited to jump into God's word with you this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open that up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, that's the third book in your New Testament, and we're gonna be continuing in our sermon series, studying through the book of Luke. And so we're gonna be in Luke chapter four this morning. Luke chapter four, so you have some time to find your way there. And as always, if you wanna use your phone app, that is good with us, and the verses are gonna be uh, on the screen behind me as well. But uh, as we get started, I want you to imagine something with me. Let's pretend that I, Alan, uh, decided to open up a new business here in Herndon, uh, an amazing coffee shop here in Herndon. And let's say this was just the best coffee shop there was. It was just great location, easy to get to, great parking, uh, good space, right? The way it was designed and all the furniture, it was just a great place to hang out and work and set up and be with your friends. Or if you wanted to sit there and freelance all day there, you could, right? Or, or it had the best coffee too. Like everything was great. And the employees were amazing. Just awesome customer service, did a great job at, at creating an environment that, that people wanted to come to and people wanted to experience. And because the coffee shop had all of these qualities, we experienced just amazing profits. And so I managed this, own it and manage it over the years, but then, you know, I, I need to move out of town. And so I don't want to sell the coffee shop. So let's say I decide to hire you to manage my coffee shop. And so when I hire you, I'm very explicit about how we run this coffee shop. This is the culture that we want to have. This is the environment that we want to have. This is how we make our coffee. This is how our employees treat the customer. Everything, customer service, everything about the coffee shop. I'm very explicit and specific about how to run this coffee shop. But let's say after I move away, some years go by and you're running the shop and you kind of get comfortable. You get a little lazy and things start to slip. The quality of the coffee slips, the customer service slips, employees start to get disgruntled. The coffee shop's always dirty. It's not the environment that it used to be. And so therefore, profits, they begin to decline. And so what I decided to do is I, I can't come here to, to check in on everything. So I send a business associate of mine over to check in and see how things are going. To see if you're running the coffee shop like I told you to run the coffee shop. And let's say the way that you treat my business associate is you basically say to him, hey, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for a long time. The way you're suggesting I do this is ridiculous. Get out of here. And you kick him out. And so let's say I'm a, I'm a gracious guy, and so I decide I still can't make a visit to the coffee shop to see you, so I decide to send my son to you. My son's part owner as well, and so I was like, you know, he'll listen to my son. And so I send my son over to visit you, take a look at how things are going, and you treat him the same way. You say, listen, I don't care if you're his son. I know what I'm doing. I know how to run this coffee shop. The way you're suggesting I run it is ridiculous, so get out of here. And you kick my son out of the coffee shop. What do you think is my next move as the owner? Right? Right? Yeah, you're, you're out. You're out. See ya. Now, Jesus tells a very similar parable to this in Mark chapter 
12. It's called the parable of the tenants. And it wasn't with a coffee shop. It was with a winery. But it's essentially the same story. And we, we don't have time to dig into Mark chapter 12. But what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about the fact that God has established his church and God has given us very specific instructions on how his church is to be run. He has been very explicit about the mission and the culture of the church. And he has told us exactly what we ought to be doing in the church. And let's say one day, Jesus, God's son, the head of the church, as the New Testament calls him, were to show up here at Grace Hill. And if he were to come, and, and, and of course, he, he'd be preaching. And uh, in his sermon, he provided some clarity, and he reminded us of exactly what God has called us to do as his church, exactly what we are to be doing in our everyday lives. He's reminded us of all of that. My my question is this, if, if that were to occur, would we enthusiastically accept his message? Would we be humble and accept any correction Would we be willing to hear potentially rebuke or admonishment? Or would what he says to us be such a radical departure from what we're used to and the way that we've always done church that we would actually reject his message? Even actually question if Jesus, who came in, be like, I don't know if he is really the son of God because what he is saying is such a huge departure from how we know to do church. I want to talk about this. What does God want his church to do today? What are we supposed to be about? What is the culture supposed to be like inside the church? What impression does God want us to have as the church on our community around us? Do we, and by we I mean Grace Hill, do we have any blind spots? Uh, Do we have areas where we've gotten too comfortable and, and stuck in our ways and maybe that's not exactly what God has called us to be doing? This is what I want to talk about today and it's a fair question for us to address because As we come to our next passage here in the Gospel of Luke, this exact situation happens to a synagogue in the town of Nazareth. They get a visit from Jesus, and they did not like what Jesus had to say to them. What Jesus said to them is such a radical departure from their normal way of life and doing worship in the synagogue, that instead of embracing the Messiah, God himself who came into their doors, they rejected. So we're going to read about that today. Uh, In our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have now come to the point in the Gospel where Jesus is now starting his public 
ministry. All right, so what we've studied the last two weeks, we studied Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. Last week, we studied Jesus' temptation in the desert. And now Luke shifts the narrative, and Jesus is now doing public ministry. And so from there, we're going to jump into our text. So let's read through it, see what it has to say to us and how we can be encouraged by it today. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 4, and today we're doing verses 14 through verse 30. 14 through verse 30. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So from his time being tempted in the desert up to Galilee, northern part of Israel, where he's from. And a report about him went out throughout all of the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus is going synagogue to synagogue, and he's teaching from the scriptures. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, whom, where he had been brought up. So this is Jesus' hometown. And, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, and he's going to read Isaiah 61. Verses one and following what Dana just read for us earlier in our service. Verse 18, this is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here's, here's what Jesus is doing. We might imagine what just happened. It's kind of like what Dana just did for us. In the middle of our service, she stood up, she read the scripture, Isaiah 61, same passage, and then she sat down, right? But that's not what's happening here in the synagogue. In their custom, the way they did things, Jesus stood up, he read from the scriptures, now he sat down, everybody is sitting at his feet, and now he's gonna preach. So Jesus is now going to teach, expound upon the passage of scripture that he just read. And it says here that everybody had their eyes fixed on Jesus. All right, because the scripture that Jesus just read, Isaiah 61, is a messianic prophecy. All right, so this is a scripture where God is promising his people that, that one day I'm going to send a Messiah, and what he's going to do is bring God's kingdom. He's going to bind up your wounds, he's going to make the blind see. He's going to take care of all of our problems. He's going to make all things new. He's going to heal our souls and heal our bodies. He's going to take away all of our pain. And so it's this passage that the Jews had, this hope of a Messiah coming to bring God's kingdom. And they waited for this day to come. That's what Jesus just read. Now look at this. Verse 21. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
In other words, Jesus just claimed to be that Messiah who was going to bring God's kingdom. He just claimed to be the fulfillment of what the Jews have been waiting for for centuries. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. He's preaching on this. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So they marveled at Jesus, but there was a bit of skepticism. This is Jesus, the boy who grew up down the street, right? The son of the carpenter. Like, I know Jesus, all right? And he just claimed to be the Messiah. But I've also heard rumors about Jesus from the other towns, that he had been going around and healing people and and performing these miracles. And so... Look at what Jesus says in response. Verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, another town in the area in Galilee, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's a little confusing what Jesus said. So let me simplify it for us. Jesus knows the thoughts of everyone in that synagogue and what they're thinking. And there's a little bit of skepticism in them about Jesus being the Messiah. And so it's almost like what the people are feeling on the inside is this sense of he's going to need to prove this. I've heard these reports of things that have happened in Capernaum and other areas. He's going to need to start doing some miracles here to prove that he's actually the Messiah. But Jesus says here, the problem is is that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Meaning, what Jesus is saying is, even if I performed miracles for you, you are not going to accept my message. What I'm about to say, you are not going to accept, even if I did all kinds of cool tricks for you. And now he's going to prove it. Look at this, verse 25. Look at what Jesus says. It says, but in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them in Israel, but only to Zarephath, a Gentile in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, none of the ones in Israel, but only Naaman, the Gentile, the Syrian. And when the people of that synagogue heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You're right, Jesus. We're not going to accept that message. And they rose up and drove them out of the town and brought them to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What did Jesus say? Like, what just happened? What did Jesus say? What sensitive spot did he just poke that caused his hometown neighbors to go from marveling at Jesus to wanting to murder him just like that? 
I think there are two things that just happened. Two things that I think we need to see in the text and two things that I think we need to humbly ask if these things are blind spots for us as well. Here are the two things. Number one, Nazareth wanted the privilege of receiving the kingdom, but they did not want the privilege of sharing it. That's number one. And number two is Nazareth was blind to the kingdom of God because of their prejudice. Privilege and prejudice. Two powerful forces within this community, this synagogue, that Jesus confronts directly and it causes this synagogue to go from worship to rage in an instant. And we need to find out why and see if these are blind spots for us as well. So let's, let's talk about both. We'll start with number one. Nazareth wanted the privilege of receiving the kingdom of God, but they did not want the privilege of sharing the kingdom of God. All right, so before there was even a Jewish people, before there was a nation of Israel, God said this. He said, hey, I have a plan. I have a plan of redeeming all of mankind from their sin, redeeming this broken world, and establishing my kingdom and making all things new. I have a plan to do this, all right? Here's gonna be my plan. I'm going to raise up a nation, a nation, a people. And I'm gonna have favor on this nation. Not because of anything they did, not because they found me first. Nope, I'm just gonna raise up a nation. I'm gonna favor on them. I'm gonna bless them. I'm gonna make promises to them. I'm gonna create a covenant with them. I'm always gonna be faithful to it. I'm never gonna leave them. No matter how frustrating they are to me, I'm never going to break my promise to this nation. They don't deserve this. They don't deserve never-ending love from me, but that's what I'm gonna give them. It's all by grace. And through that nation, all of the nations of the world will see how, how kind and how gracious God is. So, so God's blessing would flow through this one nation, Israel, to all of the nations. Because God says that his kingdom will be comprised of all nations. So this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The first words that God speaks to Abraham, right? And Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. So all of his offspring turn into Israel. So he's number one. And the first words that he tells Abraham is this, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed, all nations. All right, go to the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation. It gives you a vision of the kingdom of God. And it says, who's gonna be in the kingdom of God? It's gonna be all nations, all tribes, all tongues. So from the beginning of your Bible to the end of your Bible and everywhere in between, God has always been about his blessing reaching every single nation. And he chose one nation to be the conduit through which his blessing would flow to the nations. All right, uh, Psalm 67, very clear. Uh, this is Israel responding to God, praising God. And what do they say? Verse one, may God be gracious to us, right? Israel, 
and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. God, bless us, be gracious to us, give us all these good things so we can go out to the entire world. It's clear throughout scripture. But somewhere along the way, for the Jews in Jesus' day at least, at least these people in the synagogue, something changed. These people had a massive privilege, an amazing privilege where where God chose them to be the people whom he would bless. And and through them, his blessing would, would be to the nations. It was a privilege to be in that position. They didn't earn it. They didn't ask for it. It's just sheer grace from God, undeserved love. Just an incredible privilege. And and at some point, this amazing privilege turned into an entitlement. See, there's a difference between having these amazing privileges and being privileged, right? Titled. Uh, See, when you have these amazing privileges, you realize that you, you didn't do anything to receive those, that someone else gave those to you. Someone else gave you this benefit, gave you this favor. You didn't do anything to get it. And so what that does is it produces gratitude in you. Psalm 67 reflects that in Israel. They worshiped God, that he would bless them and give them this privilege. And then they, they saw it as a privilege to push that blessing out to the nations. But sometimes when you enjoy a privilege long enough, you can become privileged. Um, Where you forget the origin of your privilege and you fool yourself into thinking that you are the origin of it. That you earned it. You deserve this for some reason. And so the very idea of others getting in on that privilege and that blessing is now actually a threat. Gratitude can turn into jealousy and and envy. And I think this is what happened to the Jews in that synagogue in Nazareth. They thought God's blessing was just for them. They got settled into their religion, into their routine, and they forgot what it was all about. And so when Jesus preached at the synagogue, he reminded them of what it was all about. He reminded them that God is on a rescue mission, not just for Israel, but for all the nations to bring God's kingdom to all nations. And so here's what Jesus says. This is what pokes them in the way they did not want to be poked. He gave two examples of God sending prophets to Gentiles, non-Jews, right? People who were not a part of the nation of Israel, sending two prophets to them, And those prophets gave these Gentiles a taste of the kingdom of God by meeting their physical needs and also called upon them to have faith exclusively in the God of Israel. All right, so the the first example is Elijah being sent to Zarephath, this woman in the land of Sidon. Um, There's a huge famine going on. This woman was a widow. She was a single mom. 
She was struggling to get by. Afraid that they were going to die of hunger. So Elijah shows up and he announces that the God of Israel is going to take care of her by multiplying her supply of food. Right? He takes care of the physical needs here. And then this widow's son actually dies. And Elijah comes and prays to God. And God, the God of Israel, raises the son from the dead, takes care of their physical needs, gives this woman a taste of God's kingdom. A taste of what we read about in Isaiah 61. And then he also gave her faith in the God of Israel. Look at what this woman says. You read this story in 1 Kings 17. And look at what she says in verse 24. It says, and the woman, Zarephath, said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I know who the true God is. It's the God of Israel. Second example that Jesus gives to this synagogue is uh, Elisha, who came after Elijah, was sent to Naaman, who was the commander of the army in Syria, a Gentile. Naaman had leprosy and a fatal disease. And so God sent Elisha to go heal him, to give him a taste of the kingdom, which is God curing and healing all of our ailments, right? Exactly what we read about in Isaiah 61. Binding up his wounds, literally. Giving him a taste of God's kingdom. Taking care of his physical needs. But also to call Naaman to faith in the God of Israel. So look at what Naaman says. You can read this story in 2 Kings 5. Look at what Naaman says in verse 15. It says, Then Naaman returned to Elisha, the man of God, he and all his company, And he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all earth but in Israel. Taste of the kingdom of God is what Elisha gave and faith in the God of the Bible. This was the ministry strategy that God gave Israel. And oh, by the way, it is the ministry strategy that God has given his church. And Jesus reminded the synagogue in Nazareth of this, and it enraged them. Because Nazareth wanted the privilege of receiving the kingdom. All of those amazing things that we just read about in Isaiah 61. But they did not want the privilege of pushing that out to others. I think it would be humble and wise for the church today, for, for Grace Hill Church, to ask the question if we struggle with the same thing. Because look at the privilege we have. We live today after Christ came for the first time and gave of himself for the forgiveness of our sins and and rose again to be with the Father. We have the gospel, the words of life. And we know that if anyone places their faith in Jesus, They not only will have all of their sins forgiven, but God will begin a transformative work in their heart, giving them purpose and meaning and peace. His kingdom will become alive in their hearts and they become citizens of God's kingdom, guaranteed to be in God's kingdom for eternity when Christ returns. So we have the privilege of having the words of life But God has not given us the words of life so that we could just keep it for ourselves. 
But it's easy to get complacent in the church, isn't it? Just like this synagogue in Nazareth, somewhere along the way, the, the church abandoned the fact that at its most basic level, the church is a missionary agency, just like the nation of Israel was. Its very purpose is to receive blessing and good news from God and push it out to other people. But we so easily fall into the thinking that what the church really is, is a club of people who have all agreed upon the same theology and morality. We've all uh, assented to, have been enlightened to these similar beliefs. And we waste so much time fretting and defending ourselves against a culture that wants to push against that. And we spend so much time worrying about if we're gonna have our rights taken away from us or our privileges taken away from us. And so it's just so easy to get into this mode where now what we have from God is a privilege that we wanna protect and not share. And on top of the privilege of having the gospel, most of us here, not everybody, but most of us here have a privilege of Financial security, a home, a car, education, stability. Not all of us fit those categories, but many of us do. It's a privilege to have these things. Praise God for these things. And there are many in our town who don't. They don't have the gospel. And they have a whole lot of needs, suffering in a fallen world. And so I believe if Jesus were to visit Grace Hill, he... He would challenge us in the same way. He would challenge us to stop holding on to all of this privilege so close and start seeing that the true privilege is that we get to share what we have with others. How are we loving our town and our neighbors like Elijah and Elisha love those Gentiles? How are we loving our town and our neighbors like Jesus loved people that he encountered? Because when you read about the life of Jesus, this is exactly what Jesus would do. He would give them a taste of the kingdom of God by caring for their physical needs, and he would point them to have faith exclusively in the God of the Bible. And that is what the church has called, been called to do in our towns and in our neighborhoods. Give people a taste of the kingdom meet their physical needs, and call them to have faith exclusively in Jesus and the God of the Bible. I mean, this is the Christian life. It is a missionary life and a missionary lifestyle. And, and, and so this morning, uh, there's so many ways that we could begin to live this out. And we could go on and on and on. But so what I really want to do is I just want to I want to highlight and I want to challenge all of us with a very specific opportunity we have to love our town and our neighbors in this way. Uh, as I said earlier, we are, we are all privileged in that we have the gospel and most of us are privileged when it comes to stability in our lives, good things that we should rejoice in. And so many of our neighbors here in Herndon do not have either of those things. I want to show you some statistics about the children of our town. Uh, these are some economic demographics of our school. So let me, let me put up one slide here, if you can see it. So 
This is a slide that shows what percentage of our elementary schools here in Herndon, of the kids in Herndon, are economically disadvantaged. And so how that's defined by the school system, because I got these stats from the school, how that's defined is that these kids qualify for free or reduced lunches because they cannot afford um, a lunch every day, okay? Herndon Elementary School, just down the road, we have several kids in our church that go to Herndon Elementary School. 66% of the kids in that school are economically disadvantaged. Drainsville Elementary, where we used to meet uh, as a church, this is actually my uh, school that I went to, 46.8%. Hutchison, just less than a mile down Eldon Street, 74.9%, three out of four kids, economically disadvantaged. Clearview Elementary School, this is where my kids go, uh, 50, 50 50.1%, economically disadvantaged. So then go up to the middle school and high school. So next slide. This is Herndon Middle School, the school that we're in right now. 50% of the kids in this school are economically disadvantaged. One out of every two kids. And then Herndon High School, it's 43%. These percentages are far higher than the average countywide. Like far higher. We are in an area where there is a lot of people who are economically disadvantaged in our town. And one of the things I've been so grateful for is the relationship that we've been able to build with this school and how we have been able to meet needs in this school in all kinds of different ways, some ways that you know about and some ways that you don't. Uh, we've met needs in this school by pr- providing food when we, need, when we can provide food, providing winter clothing, um, stocking their hygiene closet because many of these kids don't have access to basic hygiene. Um, we're able to provide help uh, like just in various small ways. Like uh, we, we helped the kid get glasses because his parents couldn't afford it. We've put beds into somebody's home because the kid didn't have a bed to sleep in. And so what I'm grateful for is that we've developed a relationship with the guidance counselors and social workers here that when they have needs that they can't meet, they're, they're willing to pick up the phone and call us. And I praise God for that. But here's what I am most excited about when it comes to the ways that we have been asked like, like, we didn't seek this out, but we have been asked by the school to serve these kids. And that's through mentoring. We just signed a formal partnership with Fairfax County Public Schools, saying that we as a church agree contractually to continue to meet needs in this school and provide mentors to this school. Our, our church right now provides 12 mentors to kids in this school. And this is a program that Fairfax County Public Schools does. They provide mentors to students who do not have a reliable adult presence in their life. And in our schools here in Herndon, there is a wait list of kids who want a mentor because they have no reliable adult presence in their life, but there's just not enough mentors to provide. Kids who need someone to, to talk to, to help them with their homework, to just be a friend who's consistent and, and reliable. And most of us in this room have the privilege to be able to mentor a student in the schools. Uh, to, to mentor a student, all you do is um, you go through a process of getting approved, and then uh, it's a commitment of 30 minutes a week. 
You find a time that works for you and your child during the child's school day. You can come in before school. You can come in during lunch, come in after school. You come in once a week for 30 minutes and you spend time with your kid. And I, I've done all kinds of things. I mentor a student here. We, uh, there's some weeks we come in, we just shoot hoops in the gym. There are times that we come in for lunch. Uh, I've, been in, I've sat in his math class and learned about how to solve inequalities again. I forgot all of that, Right? I've pushed him, I've made him do things he did not want to do, like study for a quiz. Um, And, you know, at first he treated me like, you know, he was too cool for school and, you know, I don't really care about you, but he would text me every single week, are you coming? He has a really hard story. If I told you his story, you wouldn't believe it you would say it's exaggerated. I want to challenge you to think about mentoring a student here or in a school in Herndon or in Fairfax County. I want to challenge you to not let busyness or inconvenience of schedules to be your reason not to. And I... I'm going I'm to push us here, and I need to be pushed just as much as any of us in this room. But in Northern Virginia, busyness is the idol that we use to protect our privilege. We say, I'm too busy. There's too much stuff going on. It's too crazy. And it is. We have a crazy culture here. But I think it's the number one idol that we look to so that we don't have to do anything uncomfortable. And I can't think of a more softball opportunity that we have to give these kids a taste of the kingdom of God. To get out of our comfort and how we're used to practicing our faith. And let's not be a church that's so used to, to doing our faith in a certain way that when we're challenged to do something like this, we just don't wanna do it because that's just beyond what I'm comfortable or what I've always done. So I just want to challenge you. What would it look like for you to give 30 minutes of your week to a kid who has no reliable adult presence in his life? Because it's a need here and they're asking us to. And so if you're interested, here's what I want you to do. I want you to email me or Nick. Our emails are in your bulletin. They're on their website. You you can talk to us here. You, You would be able to find our contact info. Let us know because we are building a mentorship ministry here at the church. We've already signed an agreement with the county. We can do all of the training, all of the background checks, everything to get approved from our offices here in Herndon. We're gonna make this easy. And this is something that we could do as a church to provide mentors, send people from our church out into the schools caring for these kids. So that was the, the first way Jesus challenged the synagogue in Nazareth. And I think us here at Grace Hill, seeing the, the true privilege that we have from God is, is sharing the blessing of God with others. And I took a very long time to get through that one. Here's the second way we'll move through quick. Second way that Jesus challenged Nazareth was this. Nazareth was, was blind to the kingdom because of their prejudice. Why did the people in that synagogue try and murder Jesus? Like they tried to murder him, throw him off a cliff. I mean, yeah, Jesus came then and challenged their comfort level 
and challenge things about pushing out the, the, the blessing of God to other people. And so they could have rejected Jesus. They could have just, you know, just sent him out. But they try to kill him. There's not many forces inside the heart that can create that kind of rage instantaneously like racism or prejudice or ethnocentrism, racial supremacy. It's a problem for the Jewish people during this time. It's not that the people in this synagogue were too comfortable to push the blessing of God out to the Gentiles. It's that they hated the Gentiles. It's not that, no, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna get off you know, the, the couch and push it out. It's, it's, I don't want them to have those good things. They, they saw themselves as superior and, and they believed that God didn't want them to have them either. Right, so the prejudice of the people in the synagogue literally disqualified them from the kingdom. They couldn't imagine God's kingdom, including those nations, and to the point where they were willing to murder Jesus because they assumed he was a false prophet. That's why they wanted to murder him. Oh, he must not be from God because of that. And Jesus, to our knowledge, he left there and he never went back to Nazareth. At least that we know of from Scripture. Could it be possible that, that prejudice in our heart prevents us from loving our town and reaching them with the gospel? Maybe it's not hatred towards groups of people, but could it be fear? Fear of people who dress different or talk differently or hang out by the 7-Eleven? Could it be unproven assumptions about people, unsubstantiated assumptions? Assumptions that the, the many people of our town in poverty did it to themselves or assumptions that undocumented immigrants here, because we have a lot of them, are criminals or assumptions that sending your kid to a school that has a lot of kids who are economically disadvantaged or don't speak English will mean that your kid's gonna suffer. That's an unproven assumption. Every one of us has some prejudice in our hearts. It's just sin. It's Satan's strategy. He does it. He likes to plant that stuff in us. And it may not be based on race, but it could be on other things like economic status, personality, culture. I don't know. And prejudice will blind us to the beauty of God's kingdom and what he's creating. And it will stop us from giving our neighbors a taste of the kingdom of God and calling them to faith in Christ. Right. The church of all groups of people should be the most humble when it comes to seeking to repent of prejudice. Like the church of all groups of people should be the most introspective, not defensive. I'm not gonna get on that soapbox. We should be the most inclusive people on the planet when it comes to who we wanna push this out to. And so this morning, I want all of us to ask, where does prejudice live in my heart? Every one of us. None of us is too good for that. There's not one of us who's too good for that. Where do I fear others? Where do I make assumptions? What, what assumptions do I make about my neighbors? I'll never forget when we moved into our house uh, a year ago that we live in now. And uh, uh, there's a house down in the cul-de-sac. And uh, just it's not one specific family lives there. They rent out several rooms to a bunch of people. And I remember one of my neighbors, 
we are getting to know people said, oh, that house over there, a bunch of men live in that house. A bunch of men live in the house. I was like, okay. And they're like, yeah, it's sketchy. And I go, oh, what, what kind of sketchy things have you seen? They're like, well, I don't know. It's just a bunch of men live there. And you're just like, All right, that's, that's prejudice. And then I met one of them. His name was Alan. He had a great name. <laughs> he was from Burundi, just moved here from Africa in Burundi. And now he doesn't live there anymore, which is sad for me. You know what would give our town a taste of the kingdom? If we all lived our lives befriending people and building a relationship before we allowed ourselves to make assumptions about them. Loving people the exact way Jesus loved people. Everywhere Jesus went, he would befriend people and the Pharisees and all the religious elite would be like, why are you with them? Who are you making assumptions about? Because that may be the very person that God is calling you to go give a taste of the kingdom to. This synagogue in Nazareth got a visit from the Lord Jesus and it did not end well because these people wanted to receive the blessing of God but they had no interest in sharing it. It's like they were a stagnant pond of water. They had received from God but they didn't pour it out anywhere else. They're just stagnant and so they became foul, entitled, They looked and felt nothing like the kingdom of God. And sadly, there are so many churches, many of them who claim to be evangelical who are like this. Stagnant. Grace, so let's not be stagnant. Who doesn't put everything on the line to love and care for others. God has poured deeply into us. He has sent his son Jesus to save us and he has called us to pour out deeply into others. He has entrusted us with the message of the gospel and called us to push it out to others, not to wait for them to come to us, but to push it out. It's what God asks of his people throughout the whole Bible. And somewhere along the way, we develop this view of Christianity where we do our own thing for a week and then we all come to Sunday to practice Christianity. Christianity, and that now our society is getting post-Christian, and so we don't have as many rights, or things are getting threatened, and so we need to protect our ability to do this thing. And there's a place for religious liberty and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not against that, but I think we've gotten it backwards. The Bible has always assumed a missionary posture of its people in a hostile world. It always has. It's never guaranteed us being in a safe place to push out the blessing of God. And so I think the pattern that we see is that we spend our weeks pushing out the gospel to people. And we come here on Sundays to rest, to rejuvenate, to be encouraged, to be reminded of God's word, to be with one another, and then get ready for another week. Let's not be a church that is all about protection and preference. Let's be a church that is all about giving our neighbors a taste of the kingdom. Let me pray. God, I am thankful 
that although there, are, there is challenge and admonishment in our text this morning, I am grateful to be a part of a church who will yes and amen that message. I'm grateful to be a part of a church filled with people who are willing to sacrifice to love and care for their neighbors. And so God, I pray that that today we would take this message as a rally cry to keep going. That we would be humble if there are any blind spots. And that God, you would just continue to empower us to be a church that is faithful to, to not just keep and protect the blessing that you have given us, but that, Lord, we would see that the privilege is in the call to push it out. And I pray for fruit in that, Lord, that as we continue to do ministry in this town, as we continue to serve the kids of this school and the other schools of Herndon, that, God, you would just produce amazing fruit. As we seek to meet physical needs and bind up wounds and at the same time to call people to put their faith in Jesus because he is where true life is found. We love you, God, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.